Good morning to everyone. I want to begin this morning by wishing all of our fathers a very happy Father's Day. What this world needs now, maybe more than ever, are good, strong, God-fearing men who are willing to lead their families and raise their children as men of God should. And we're thankful for you and we pray for you every day. Also want to uh, take just a moment and say a few words about camp by way of expression, expressing appreciation. I want you to know, first of all, that I personally believe that camp is one of the most important works that this congregation does. And the reason is because I don't think that it's possible to, to measure the impact over the years that Bible camp has on untold number of, of kids as they grow up going to camp as campers every year and then some who are able to return and work as staff members. The, the spiritual growth and encouragement and maturity that campers and even staff members receive while we're there is really irreplaceable in my judgment. But the thing about camp is that we couldn't have it without the participation and the support of so many of the members of this congregation, both who go and who actually work at camp or who support it financially or with food or whatever. And so we want to say thank you to everyone who had a part in making camp so successful this year. And uh, the chicken deacon did an incredible job leading this year, and we need to thank God for him. We're glad for him and his willingness to take, take on that role. You know, there are a number of people, hundreds, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people really who are all gathered together in various buildings under various headings as religious groups this morning just like we are here today. There are any number of religious groups that exist in the world and all of them are very, very different. There are a number of defining characteristics that can be seen within them. For example, some are very old. Some religious groups have been around for a long, long time. Some are very young having existed only for maybe a period of weeks or months. Some are very large and have thousands, if not millions, of members throughout the world, whereas some are very small and their numbers are only uh, maybe, maybe even single digits. There are any number of creeds and traditions that lay beneath the doctrine or the teaching and the practice of these various religious groups and bodies Various leaders have led those bodies throughout the years. Various uh, traditions, if you will, have been put in place that, that they follow. There are all kinds of different characteristics and defining traits that could be found within these religious groups. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that of all of the religious bodies that exist and that meet on any given Sunday like we're doing here this morning... There's really only one religious body that is truly unique, and that is, that is the church that Jesus Christ built. Its uniqueness is seen in a number of different ways. For example, you consider the name. The name Church of Christ is, lo is unique and is loaded with spiritual significance. The word church doesn't mean the building. The word church is simply talking about the people. The word of is a word that shows possession, and then there's Christ, who is the king and the builder and the, the ruler of the church. 
So the name Church of Christ simply just means the people that belong to Jesus Christ. The name is unique and the name itself is significant. The doctrine of the church that Jesus built is unique. There are no creeds or traditions or councils that determine what the church is going to teach and what the church is going to practice. There are no groups that meet on a regular basis and determine how the church will do, uh, how the church will react to this problem or how the, what the church will say or do about, about that problem. The church uh, is composed of congregations that are autonomous and that are overseen by elders, and those elders are responsible for overseeing that particular congregation, that, that structure is unique. The organization is unique. This morning, I want us to think more clearly, more thoroughly about the uniqueness of the church, and I'd like for us to do that by turning our attention to the book of Acts and looking at Acts chapter 2, where we find the occasion in which the church came into existence. And on this occasion, as we examine the sermon of the Apostle Peter, I want to suggest to you that, that we're going to find four unique characteristics of the church and here they are right at the beginning number one it is the church of prophecy number two it was established by an authenticated savior number three it is ruled by a risen lord and number four it is composed of the saved let's look at the first one of those of those points the church that Jesus built is unique because it is the church of prophecy. There are a number of passages in the sermon of Acts chapter 2 in which the Apostle Peter will quote specifically or refer to prophecy that exists in the Old Testament. Acts 2 verse 16 to 21, which we'll look at in just a moment. Acts 2 verse 23. Acts 2, verse 25 to 28, and Acts 2, verse 34 and 35, all are passages in this sermon in which the Apostle Peter makes reference to prophecy. Now, these religious bodies that we talked about a moment ago that exist all throughout the world, they all came into existence in many ways and for many reasons. Some came into existence because of division and doctrinal differences. In other words, there was a religious group and there was a division or a doctrinal disagreement in that group, so that group split and now from one you have two. Some religious groups come into existence simply because they follow the leader. Maybe a man rises up and says, look, th this is what I think we ought to do. And because of his personality or because of his teaching or whatever the case may be, individuals say, we're going to follow you. And so they do, and that forms a new religious body. But what we need to understand about the church that Jesus built is that this church has existed in the mind of God from eternity. In Ephesians 1 and verse 4, the Bible tells us that the church of Jesus Christ, that God purposed from eternity to bring that church into existence. In fact, he said, Paul says this, that he has chosen us, that's Christians, that's the church, in him, that's in Jesus, before the foundation of the world. In other words, before God ever said, let there be light, God knew that Jesus was going to come into the world and Jesus was going to establish his church and so he chose us in him before the foundation of the world in ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 
the Apostle Paul talks more about why Jesus came to die. He is talking in this case about Jew and Gentile. And he makes the point that Jesus is our peace. Talking about the peace, that uh, the one that makes peace possible between man and his God and man and his fellow man. He tells us that Jesus came into the world to die on the cross so that he might abolish in the flesh the enmity that was between Jew and Gentile. That's the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to make both one. In other words, we are reconciled man to man in one body, that's the church, by the cross. And we're reconciled man to God in one body, by the ch uh, that's the church, uh, to God by the cross. Then in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul will say that all of this has existed in God's mind from eternity. In fact, he will call it the eternal purpose of God. So when we're talking about the church that Jesus built, we're not talking about a body that came into existence anytime recently. We're not talking about a body that came into existence because of division or because of following a leader. We're talking about a church that came into existence because that's what God planned before he ever created the world. But notice this point as well. Though the church existed in the mind of God from eternity, Jesus chose, or excuse me, God chose to reveal information about that kingdom through the Old Testament prophets. Do you know that there are in the Old Testament over 300 messianic prophecies? Prophecies about Jesus Christ, including his birth, his death, his suffering, and a number of other things about him. But included in that list, of course, are prophecies about his kingdom. We call them kingdom prophecies or prophecies about the church of Christ. Now, there are some of those that are memorable. They stand out. Let me list them for you. In Isaiah chapter 2, we read about the location of the church's establishment, and it's Jerusalem. That's the passage that Brett read for us a moment ago. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. The prophet Isaiah speaks of the time in which the law of the Lord is going to go forth from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion. He is telling us about the place in which the kingdom of God is going to come into existence. In Joel chapter 2, Joel the prophet tells us about how that's going to happen and he says it's going to happen with power. He talks about the spirit of God being poured out upon all flesh and we'll notice in a moment that Peter will quote this passage in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel tells us when all of this is going to happen. He tells us that it's going to happen during the time of the Roman Empire. So we have the where, we have the how, we have the when. And then we fast forward to the New Testament where Jesus himself makes a prophecy in Matthew chapter 16. The Bible tells us in Matthew 16, 13 and following that when Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I the son of man am? And they said, well, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said, well, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And he says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the grave, literally, shall not prevail against it. Notice the prophetic language. Jesus says, I will, in the future, I will build my church. Now listen to this passage, Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. 
Jesus, again, speaking in the form of prophecy, looked at those who were there with him and said, There are some of you standing here today who will not see death until you see the kingdom coming with power. I will build my church, Matthew 16, 18. Some of you will still be alive when you see this kingdom coming with power, Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. And then we turn our attention to Luke chapter 24, verses 47 through 49 where Jesus, just before his ascension, speaks to the twelve and says, I want you to go and I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And when that happens, uh, repentance and remission of sin shall be preached in my name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Then we turn our attention to Acts chapter 1 and we find that the twelve did exactly what Jesus told them to do in Luke 24. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 verse 1 through 4, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they begin speaking in tongues, languages never before learned. And then Peter begins to preach his sermon. Look at Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse number 16. Peter says... But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it will come to pass in the last days, saith God, that I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams, and on my, servant, my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they will prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Then shall be turned into, uh, the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord shall come, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice how all of this fits together. The kingdom is coming, the church is coming in Jerusalem, Isaiah chapter 2. It's going to come with power, Joel chapter 2. It's going to happen during the time of the Roman Empire, uh, Daniel chapter 2. Jesus lives during the time of the Roman Empire, and he says, I'm going to build a church, Matthew chapter 16. Some of you are going to see the kingdom come with power, Mark chapter 9. Go wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power, Luke chapter 24. They're in Jerusalem, they receive the power, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. And then what does Peter do? Peter quotes that very prophecy from Joel 2, verse 28 through 32, verbatim, and says what Joel was talking about in that particular prophecy is happening right now. Well, what was Joel talking about? Joel was talking about the establishment, the existence, the birth, if you will, of the kingdom. That's the church of Jesus Christ. One very unique characteristic of the church that Jesus built is that it is the church of prophecy. It is the church that when we turn our attention to the Old Testament, we begin to notice that the prophets are anticipating something. They're anticipating a king and they're anticipating his kingdom. And then when we turn our attention to the New Testament, we see that the king comes into the world, that's Jesus, and we see that his kingdom is established, that's the church. And now Paul will say in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 that Jesus is the head of the church, and Peter will say in this very sermon, Acts chapter 2, that Jesus is now, verse 36 and following, the king of his kingdom. There is no other religious body that exists in the world that can make, this, that can make the same claim that Jesus can make about his church, and that is that it is the church of prophecy. It's the only one. Number two, one unique characteristic about the kingdom of God is that it was established by an authenticated Savior. I want you to look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Acts 2, verse 22. 
And before we read that passage, make note of the fact that throughout, the, throughout history, there have been a number of messianic figures who have arisen. Even in the first century world, the intertestamental period, there were a number of figures that arose and claimed to be the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy. They claimed to be the anointed one. That's really the meaning of Messiah, the anointed one. And there have been a number of people, even in our modern age, who have arisen and said things like, well, I'm the, I'm the second coming of Jesus, or I have been called of God, so listen to me and follow me, or whatever the case may be. But what you need to recognize, according to Acts chapter 22, is that there's only one person in the history of the world that actually has the ability to say, I am the Messiah, and therefore I have the right to establish the kingdom. Only one person can say that, and that's Jesus, and the reason is because he fulfills the requirements. Look at Acts 2.22. Peter is speaking to a number of Jews on Pentecost, and listen to what he says. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you uh, by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as you yourselves also know, I want you to look at this passage with me and, and uh, let's break, break it down a little bit. Look at the word approved. The word approved literally means to be accredited or authenticated. And it's interesting to note that the Greeks would use this particular word to describe an official office holder. An official office holder. So what he's saying now about Jesus is that he is authenticated, he is accredited, he is the official office holder, and who authenticated him? Who accredited him? Who put him in that office, if you will? He says what? Approved of God. Well, how did God approve him? Well, he speaks of the miracles that were done, and he uses three terms in which to describe them. First of all, he uses the word miracles. It literally refers to powers, and he's talking about those miraculous works that were designed to demonstrate the power of Almighty God. In other words, Jesus had the power of God. Second, he uses the word wonders. And the word wonders is a word that is, uh, speaks of those works that are intended to arouse astonishment or amazement. Astonishment or amazement. And then he uses the word signs. And this is a word which signifies things that are Ill intended to illustrate or point to a sign, excuse me, point to a spiritual truth. So when you put all of these together, here's what you have. Jesus of Nazareth, he is the one whom God has authenticated or whom God has approved or accredited. He did that by showing you that Jesus had the power of Almighty God, by showing you these wonders which were intended to arouse your astonishment or amazement, and these were signs that were pointing to a spiritual truth. What Every time Jesus performed a miracle, that miracle was intended to point to a spiritual truth. That's the point he's making. Question, what's the spiritual truth? That Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but he doesn't stop there. Look at the last part of the verse. He said, God did these by him in your midst. 
In other words, these things weren't done in a corner. You saw them. You witnessed them with your own eyes. And then he says, as you yourselves also know. And he uses a word in the original language here for knowledge that has to do with full knowledge that is based on observation. Stop and think about that for a moment. The Apostle Peter is preaching to a crowd of Jewish people at Pentecost, some of whom saw Jesus. They heard him teach and preach. They saw some of the miracles that he performed. Perhaps some of them were even there in the crowd shouting, crucify him. And the point that Peter is making is, look, God left no shadow of any doubt in anybody's mind that Jesus absolutely was and is who he says he is. He did all of these things in your midst before your eyes and you know it to be true. And if I might, by way of application, make this point, we know it to be true as well. They had all of the evidence that they needed and we have all of the evidence that we need we know that Jesus is, that he is authenticated, he is approved of God, he is the only one who has the right to claim to be the Messiah and the only one who has the ability to build the kingdom of God, only Christ. He fulfills the prophecies. He was born of a virgin, Isaiah 7 and verse 14. He was born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2. He's the suffering servant, Isaiah chapter 53. He arose from the grave. And because he arose from the grave, Psalm number 16 and Psalm number 110, as Peter will quote later in this sermon, because he arose from the grave, he is therefore now proclaimed Lord and Christ. No other person in the world has the right to build any religious body because no one meets the qualifications that Jesus meets. No one is authentic in the way that Jesus is authentic. Number three, the church that Jesus built is authentic because, borrowing from our previous point, it is ruled by a risen Lord. If you'll pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse, 20, uh, verse uh, 29, and read Acts 2, verse 29 through 33. Actually make note of Acts 2, verse 24 first. You will notice that the apostle Peter will quote Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 for the purpose of showing the scriptural foundation for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's read some of it. Beginning in verse 24, Peter says, Whom God has raised up, you crucified, in verse 23. But God raised him up, verse 24, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaks concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy with your countenance. Peter then says, look, David wasn't talking about himself, verse 29. He was a prophet, verse 30, and he knew that God had sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. That's a reference to 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 to 16. And now listen to how he brings it home in verse 31. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. There, this Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. 
Now, point number one then is, Peter says, look, there's no question as to the fact that Jesus has raised from the dead. There's no question as to the fact that his resurrection was, was prophesied. And there's no question as to the fact that through or because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was not only going to be raised, but he was going to be raised to sit on the throne of David. Now look at the conclusion then, beginning in verse 33. Therefore, since God prophesied of his resurrection and since his resurrection has happened, here's the result. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. Skip to verse number 36. Therefore, let the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Point number one, Jesus rose. Point number two, because Jesus rose, he is king. He is Lord and he is Christ. We think about that just for a moment. Our minds go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, one of the many messianic prophecies that are found in the Old Testament. But in this particular prophecy, Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, what we find is a prophetic utterance of Jesus the King receiving his kingship. The Bible tells us that, that Daniel saw the Son of Man going to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and receiving a kingdom. And that he was going to rule over that kingdom. Well, Peter tells us in, in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus ruling as king over his kingdom is no longer something that's potential or in prospect. It is now something that is a reality. And that's because, to use the language of Romans 1-4, he was declared to be the Son of God with power through the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. He now reigns over his kingdom, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. The Bible tells us that the greatest manifestation of the power of God is seen in that he raised Jesus from the dead, Ephesians 1, 18 to 20. And now according to verse number 22, he is the head of his body, which is the church. He's the king. What does that mean? Well, that means he rules it. That means he gets to dictate our doctrine and our practice. In fact, if you'll notice later on in Acts 2, verse 42, the Bible tells us that the church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers, meaning that the early Christians didn't get together and assemble a council or begin writing traditions or creeds or uh, anything of that matter. But what they did is they listened to the apostles as the spokesmen of the Lord, those who were inspired of the Spirit. And when they preached, when they preached their doctrine, it really wasn't their doctrine. The Bible tells us in John 14, 15, and 16, and in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, that the content of the apostles' preaching wasn't from their own mind, but rather it was from the Spirit that inspired them to do their preaching and their teaching. They were preaching and teaching the words of God. So Jesus is king then is the only one who has the right to rule his body. He is the only one who has the ability to tell us what we're going to believe and what we're going to do and how we're going to worship and how we're going to live our lives and raise our families and conduct ourselves as his children. Jesus and only Jesus has the right to do it. The church is unique because it is ruled by a risen Lord. Finally, number four, the church is unique because it is composed of the saved. You get to the conclusion of Peter's sermon in verse number 37, and here is the response. The Bible says, now when they heard this, stop for a moment, what had they heard? They had heard that 
the prophets foresaw this time coming early on in the sermon. They had heard that Jesus, the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the one the prophets were speaking about because he was authenticated by God. They had heard that Jesus had risen from the grave and now because he has risen from the grave, he sits by the right hand of God, exalted and rules as king over his kingdom. They heard all of this, and so the Bible says, when they heard it, they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice as you keep reading in verse 41 that those who gladly received the word were baptized. That same day added to them about 3,000 souls. And if you skip down to verse 47, the Bible will tell us that the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. We put all of that together and what does it tell us? Go back to our definition, our, our name. The church of, what is the church the church is not the building. The church is the people. Well, what people are we talking about? We're talking about the people who hear the, pro the proclamation of the gospel of Christ, who, like those on the day of Pentecost, have their hearts pricked by the teaching of the gospel of Christ, who respond by saying, what do we need to do, and then, and then are obedient to what the Lord says to do. Well, what does he say to do? We leave the context of Acts chapter 2 and we see a number of things that the Bible tells us are necessary in order to be saved. One, the first and maybe the most obvious is hearing. The Bible tells us in Romans 10 verse 17 that faith comes by hearing the word of God. But there's also believing in the deity of Jesus because Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins, John 8 and verse 24. Then there's repentance. Notice that Peter mentions it in this passage, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. It's a change of life that leads to a change of action. You might think of it as a 180 degree turn. You turn from darkness to the light. That's the idea of repentance. Then there's confession, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. Confession is made with the mouth unto, right, unto salvation. And then there's baptism. Again, Acts 2 and verse 38 and Acts 2 and verse number 41. Baptism is immersion in water, and the reason why we are baptized is that our, so that our sins might be washed away, so that our sins might be forgiven, so that the Lord may add us to the church. Don't forget that last part. It's not just baptism for the forgiveness of sins, it's baptism for the forgiveness of sins, so that being washed and justified and sanctified, God might be able to add us to the church of Christ. Why is that important? Look at Ephesians 5.23. Because the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.23 that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the body. What's the body? The body's the church, Ephesians 1, verse 22 and 23. There's only one of them according to Ephesians 4 and verse 4, and Jesus is the Savior of that one, Ephesians 5 and verse 23. God's will, God's desire from eternity was to bring the church of Jesus Christ into existence. Through the prophets, he let mankind know the church is coming, the kingdom is coming, the king is coming. Jesus, in his preaching, said, the kingdom is here, the time is here, the time is at hand. I'm going to establish the church. Some of you are going to see it. You're not going to die until you see it. They saw it, Acts chapter 2. 
All that God had planned from eternity, all that he had revealed through the prophets, now was coming to fruition. And according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16, what God's desire is, is that every man be in that church, be in that body, be in Christ. All of those designations, of course, are synonymous. And the way that that happens is by hearing and believing and repenting and confessing and being immersed in water so that God will add us to the body of Jesus Christ. The reason that the church is so unique is because the church is composed of the saved. When we think about the church of Christ, the word unique is a word that ought to come to our minds first and foremost. Unique meaning different, meaning it stands apart, it is set apart. Why? Because of some of the very reasons we've looked at this morning in Acts chapter 2. It's the church of prophecy and no other religious body can make that claim. It is the church that was founded by an authenticated Savior. No other religious body can make that claim. It is the church that is governed by a risen Lord. No one else can make that claim. And it is the church that is composed of the saved. No one else, no other religious body can make that claim. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, we must never be ashamed to be members of the church of Christ. And we must never be ashamed to to present the good news, to, to, to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that so desperately needs it and show from God's word that, look, there is a way that man can be reconciled with his fellow man and with his God, and that way is in one body, that's the church, by the cross. That means Jesus died to make it a reality, Ephesians 2, verse 14 through 16. So this morning as we offer the invitation, the question, here's the question, are you a member of the body of Jesus Christ? Through hearing and believing and repenting and confessing and being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins so that you may be added to the body. Have you made that decision? If not, why not? What are you waiting for? Maybe you're a Christian this morning and there are some things in your life that you're struggling with. We talk sometimes, maybe we should talk about it more often, about the second law of pardon. We read about it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 and following. John said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from our sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You know what that means? That means that God knows that I am not going to be perfect. Neither are you. But the idea is that every day I try to be better than I was the day before. That's walking in the light. And when I realize that I have fallen, I have sinned, I have, I have fallen short of God's glory, God says, here's what you do. You confess your sin to me, and I'm faithful, and I'm just, and I'll forgive it. That's the second law of pardon. And we ought to thank God for it every day. Maybe we can pray with you and for you this morning and help you in some way. Whatever your need happens to be, please come forward and let it be known while we stand and while we sing.